If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 4. As we look at our second week of this wonderful story of Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well. It was July 11th, 2013, when Andrea and I had an experience like many of you have had. We stood in a dark room filled with computer monitors when a doctor pointed to the screen and showed us that Andrea's chest was filled with a massive tumor. I will never forget that moment. It was so strange and so shocking and so surreal. It was an absolutely gut-wrenching moment. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was incredibly hard to believe and hard to believe all the emotions that came at one time. We were fearful and anxious and overwhelmed and confused. And like just in one moment in this little dark room, just overwhelmed with a thousand thoughts and feelings and emotions. But there is one emotion that we never felt. We never felt angry at the doctor for telling us. We were never mad that the doctor had the audacity to be so cruel to tell us something so painful and hurtful. It was without question the, the worst news that we had ever received, the most shocking news that we would ever receive. We had never experienced anything like it, but we weren't mad at the doctor. We were not thankful for the news, but we were certainly thankful to know what was going on. The doctor, the doctor did the right thing. It was the necessary thing. The only other option would have been a terrible thing. Imagine if the doctor would have looked at the scans and seen everything that was there and then thought about us and thought, well, they're just so young and they've got four little kids at this point and the youngest is just one. I, I don't have the heart to tell them this. This would be, this would be so cruel and mean to, to give them this news. And so imagine if she just decided not to give us this news because she was afraid of how we might feel and how it might affect us. Or imagine that she thought, I don't want to give them that news, but I want to help her. So maybe what I'll do is this. I will just suggest maybe some like proactive treatment. So I won't tell them anything's wrong. I'll just suggest maybe 600 hours of chemo and 26 rounds of radiation, which is what Andrea had. And just say, I, I don't know exactly. I just kind of feel that maybe this is something you ought to do. That would have been equally as cruel and we wouldn't have done it. The only reason that Andrea was ever willing to go through that much treatment is because there had been a doctor that had been kind enough to show us what was really going on inside of her. Last week, we looked at the first part of this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. It is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the scripture. Remember the context we looked at last week that Jesus is leaving Judea where he has been rejected by his own, exactly what John 1 said is going to happen. His own did not receive him. And so he leaves Judea as the mission is extending to other places. He goes to Samaria. It says there that he is tired from the journey, weary from the journey. It's not just a reference to the fact that he's weary from that day's walk, which is certainly would have been true six miles or so in the desert, but he's just tired from the whole thing. He's tired from being rejected by his own people. He's tired because of the hostility of the religious leaders. He's probably a little bit tired by the slowness of learning of his disciples. He's just like we often get, he's just tired. He's physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. 
And so as he walks with his disciples into this area of Samaria, he sends his disciples to get food and he just sits on the dirt, leans up against a well. And it says in the text we had last week that it was necessary for him, he had to go through Samaria, which we saw last week was not necessarily true. It wasn't geographically true. He did not need to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, Jews took an alternate route and walked around Samaria across the Jordan because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. But it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the reason was not because it was geographically necessary it was true because it was spiritually necessary. The wind of the Spirit of God, as it tells us in John through, was blowing towards Samaria. And Jesus was going there because he had a divine appointment. He was going, exhausted as he was, to sit beside that well because there was a woman there that he wanted to meet. And so it is every one of us who have met Jesus Christ in whatever moment that was, in whatever situation that was, for me, the summer of 1991 in Tacoa Falls, Georgia, the Lord had a divine appointment that night with me. And so it is with you, anytime the Lord has met you, he's there because he has a divine appointment. And so he does with the woman at the well. And he sits there and waits and she arrives. He engages her in a conversation. Look at the text. This is from last week, but I want to read it to give us context. It says in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. In verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, this is the key verse here. If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 10, the most critical verse for us, I would say in the whole story, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, John three sixteen, the gift of the father of the son, then you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. If we know who Jesus is, if we really believe who he is, we would ask him for more. We wouldn't ask him for less. We would go to him for everything. We would ask him to meet the deepest needs of our soul. We would go to him constantly for satisfaction. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for everything. What we said last week is the point of that text was this. Life without Jesus is an ever-increasing thirst and an ever-decreasing satisfaction. Life without Jesus is an ever-increasing thirst, more and more thirsty, and an ever-decreasing satisfaction. But life with Jesus is an ever-decreasing thirst and an ever-increasing satisfaction. That's the point Jesus was making. The life with me is an ever-decreasing thirst. You will be becoming less and less thirsty. As you are drinking from me, you will have an increasing satisfaction. So at this point, the conversation has become very vague and a bit impersonal. It's abstract. They're standing by a well, and so Jesus talks about water. And he asks for a drink, and she is surprised because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. He then says, if you knew who I was, you would ask for living water. And so essentially what he's doing right here is he's giving her a cure 
for a disease she doesn't know she has. He's giving her an answer to a question she doesn't know she has. He's giving her a solution to a problem she doesn't know she has. It would be like the doctor saying, I suggest you take this treatment without showing you what's really going on. And so what Jesus does now is what he has to do. In an act of incredible love and graciousness and kindness, he begins to reveal what's really inside of her. He goes from the vague and impersonal to the very specific and very personal. So let's look at our text for today, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think it's hard for us to really comprehend how shocking verse 16 would have been. Here is this woman having a very casual conversation with a stranger. It's a bit strange because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. He's a man and she's a woman. She is shocked as the disciples are shocked when they come back and see it. She is the one that even says, why are you asking me a question? But it's not crazy. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility. So she's just having this kind of vague, interesting conversation with a stranger. And then in one moment with one statement, he takes this vague and casual conversation and brings it directly to her place of greatest shame. Her place of greatest disappointment. Her place of greatest embarrassment and emptiness and, and loneliness and hurt and maybe bitterness. With one statement, he goes very specific and very personal. Imagine what this would be like. Imagine you're waiting for a cup of coffee in line and it's Christmas and it's busy and you don't really feel like talking to a lot of people. You're just trying to get enough caffeine to get the shopping done and the person in front of you decides to start a casual conversation about the busyness of the mall or what, nobody goes to the mall, uh, the busyness of Amazon, whatever it is, and you're just there talking and it's casual and it's fun and it's Christmassy and, and it's a little unusual, but it's fine. And then all of a sudden, this individual with one statement somehow says something very pointed to you about your life, which reveals what would be impossible for this person to know, and that is your place of greatest shame. The area in which you are the most embarrassed, the area which makes you the most bitter, the area of greatest hurt and pain and confusion, this is exactly what Jesus does. But there is kindness here. 
I would say there may not be kindness here if a complete stranger did this to you, but there is kindness in what Jesus is doing here because like a doctor with a sick patient, it's necessary for him to reveal to her what's inside because she doesn't even know. Like Andrea walking around day to day having no idea what's inside of her, so it is. Here's a woman who walk around every day having no idea what's really going on inside. And so Jesus in his grace and his kindness shows her what she does not even realize is happening. And it is painful and it is hard to hear and it is deeply personal, but it is the first necessary step to her healing. You see, the reality is, is Jesus' heart is broken for her. He came here because his heart is broken. And I, I think I'm learning a lot of this as I'm studying through John. There's all these kind of vague thoughts that we have about Jesus seeing the multitudes and feeling compassion and weeping over the multitudes. But Jesus weeping over the multitudes is really just Jesus weeping over individual people. And so Jesus sees your pain and he sees your hurt and he weeps over it. It, it breaks his heart. What breaks your heart breaks his heart. And so it is that Jesus is here because his heart is broken for this woman because he knows exactly what is going on in her heart. And so out of a broken heartedness and a love and a compassion and tenderness for her, Jesus does what Jesus does here. I am being taught as I'm studying through John how much every chapter builds on the next because this is exactly what Jesus does. In John 1, 4 and 5, it says, In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. You know what Jesus is doing? He's shining the light in the darkness. In John 2.25, it says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. So the Jesus, who sovereignly knew exactly what was inside of this woman, takes the light and shines it directly into the darkness. John 3.19 says this, the light has come into the world, but the people hated it because it exposed their darkness. Now you would imagine in this moment that this woman might hate what Jesus did. Like she might be angry that Jesus would have the audacity to take the light and shine it in the deepest darkness of her soul. Because, but he did it because unless she sees the depths of her sin, she'll never see her need for Jesus. And can I just tell you the same thing is true. Until you come to the place of brokenness over your sin and hatred for your sin and disgust over your sin and a desire to not have your sin anymore, you will never see your need for Jesus. And so it is necessary for the light to shine through the word of God and the power of the spirit of God in your own time in the word and the preaching of the word for the light to shine in your heart and reveal to you your sin. And can I just stop and say a practical word here? At what context are you in on a regular basis in which someone knows you enough and loves you enough to say something like Jesus just said to her? It is one thing to be in a context, maybe like a marriage in which someone knows you well enough, but in that relationship, have you made yourself open enough so that someone has the freedom to say, hey, I think I see something in your heart and you need to know it. I've talked to you before about the kind of vision of our church is to get people into smaller circles. It may begin at a men's breakfast or a senior adult lunch or a women's gathering, whatever it is. And we want to get you into this room and praise God you're in this room. You need to be here for the preaching of the word. And one of the ways God shines the light is through his word. And he's doing it this morning and he does it through your own personal time with him. But we want to get you in a community group and then a discipleship group. Why? Because it's really easy to hide in here. You can be here for 20 years and you can be a greeter or an usher or a teacher and no one ever know that you're not walking with Jesus. And so in what context are you in in which someone is able to shine the light? Because you say, well, how does Jesus in this day and age shine the light 
on the darkness of our life? Well, through the preaching of his word, through the reading of his word, the power of his Holy Spirit, and through the fellowship of brothers and sisters who will love you enough to do what Jesus did and say, I want to shine the light on the area of darkness in your life. It's exactly what he does. But the woman does exactly what we would tend to do. She says, truthfully, I have no husband. That's a great answer because it's true. She doesn't have a husband. But you know how politicians will often say something that's technically true, but not really true? Or how our children will often say something that's technically true, but not really true? Or how we will say something that is technically true, but not really true? She said something that's technically true. She does not have a husband. What a fantastic answer. What a great way to try to avoid the subject and move on and let's go back to living water. But Jesus continues his pursuit. And I was amazed by this verse, verse 18, in such a kind way because he affirms her twice for her truthfulness. Look at what he says. You are right in saying, I have no husband. And at the very end of that verse, he says, you, what you have said is true. Jesus could have looked at her and said, liar, liar, pants on fire. He could have said, you know, woman, that's not true. Don't give me that kind of answer. But he says, what you've said is true. What a kindness, what a gentleness to say, I know that what you've said is true, but he has to, like a doctor, expose what is inside. And so what he says is this, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. I talked about last week about Jeremiah 2.13, where Jeremiah, so the Lord says through Jeremiah to the people of God, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have made for themselves, hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold new water, no water. And it's a, it's a picture of all of humanity trying to fill themselves up without Jesus, forsaking the fountain of living water and carrying around these leaking buckets, constantly filling them with something that satisfies, but what they don't realize is the buckets leak. And so there's no way to ever be fully satisfied. What Jesus is doing in this moment, he's showing her that she's been carrying around the heaviness of leaky buckets. Her weight, the weight of her shame and her pain and all of her suffering that she's experienced is these leaky buckets. And she's hanging and she's walking around with the heaviness and she doesn't understand why she can't find life and satisfaction. It's because she has leaky buckets that she's carrying around. Jesus needs to show her that in order to show her that what she really needs is the fountain of living water. So she says in verse 19, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. It sounds like you know what you're talking about. It seems like you're a prophet. And then she decides to change the subject again. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say then Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So there was a debate between the place of worship. Jews believed it was on Mount Zion. Samaritans believed it was in Mount Gerizim. And so she said this. Uh, speaking of my five marriages and my new boyfriend, what about the place in which we're to worship? That's her way to change the subject once again. I have no husband. Yes, I know that. Well, since you seem to be a prophet, can you settle this age-old debate about where we should really worship? You see, Jesus had gone from vague to impersonal to specific and personal, and she wants to go back. She liked this conversation much better when it was vague and impersonal. But Jesus is not going to go back. Jesus uses her question to keep pursuing her. 
we tend to think here that Jesus is chasing a rabbit or he's distracted. That Jesus somehow gets sidetracked by this woman because he's talking about living water and she wants to talk about worship. And so somehow Jesus goes with her and you say, Jesus, keep focused here. What's going on? But that's not what he's doing. He uses her question to go exactly where he wants to go. I was thinking this week about the evangelism strategy called the three circles. Jimmy Scroggins uh, wrote a little book to go along with that uh, called something like taking ordinary conversations and turning them into gospel conversations. It's a wonderful way to share the gospel. I would encourage you to look it up. The three circles. You can find it online. But one of the ways he teaches evangelism is taking normal conversations and turning them. This is what Jesus does masterfully. You want to talk about worship? I'll talk about worship. But he's going to talk about worship and take her directly to where he wanted her to go in the first place. And that is living water. So he says this. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You say, well, how is the worship of the Father related to this woman's need for life and satisfaction and, and Jesus? Well, I think the answer is in John 1, 9 through 13, where it says this. John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. She knows this. This is happening to her. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's also happening to her, if you would know who was talking to you. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the reason he's there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. In order for someone to be a father, they have to have children. Jesus has come to gather children of God. He has come to bring people into right relationship with, the God, with God. And so what he is doing is he is taking her, her desire to talk about the worship of the Father and say, if you want to talk about worship of the Father, I want you to know that the only way you can ever have a right relationship with the Father is if you become a child of God. I mean, that's everything, right? Everything flows from that first step of getting in a right relationship with God. What he's talking about here is salvation. He's talking about living water. He is helping her understand the way in which she can get right with God. How do you get in a right relationship with God? Well, you become a, a true worshiper. You become a child of the Father. And so he says, okay, you want to talk about worship? Let me tell you a few things about worship. And, and let me tell you a few things what he says here. The first one is this. He says this, and first of all, the issue of where doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore where. It's, there's coming a time in which here or, or there, he's staying here because they were right there close to where the Samaritans believed that they were going to worship. Or in Jerusalem, he says, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Stop thinking about where you need to go to worship. An hour is coming when that doesn't matter, first of all. That's verse 21. Verse 22, second, you don't know the truth. He says to her, well, it seems like a strange statement. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying is what you don't understand is that worship is not about a place. Worship is about a person. And when he says salvation comes from the Jews, what he's referring to is from the Jews, a savior is going to come. The seed of Abraham is going to come. The one from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Manasseh. Uh, a savior is coming from the Jews. Get your mind off of a place of worship and put your mind onto the savior that is coming from the Jews. So first, where does it matter? Second, what? I mean, who is what matters? A savior is coming from the Jews. But he says, third of all, that hour I told you about, 
Verse 23, that hour is now. He says, the hour is coming and now is here. This is the moment. This is the time. The Savior is here. That's the point of verses 25 and 26. Look at that. He says, the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, he's here. This is why I keep saying that verse 10 is the most important verse because Jesus says to her, if you knew who was here, if you knew who was talking to you, if you knew who was standing here, you would ask him and he would give you everything. Jesus keeps saying, he's here, he's here. The hour is, is now. This savior is, is coming, he is here, he's, he's talking to you. While you are focused on a place for salvation and worship, Jesus says it's all about a person. If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. It's not about a where, it's about a who. And you say, well, when is that who coming? And Jesus says, it's right now. This is it. He's here right now. And the final thing he says about worship in verse 23 is this. True worshipers, true worship, they worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers, those who worship the Father, meaning there is no true worship that doesn't worship the Father through Jesus Christ. So just know this, any religion that is worshiping does not really worship unless they worship the Father through the Son. There is no true worship outside of Jesus Christ. There is no true worship that, that doesn't, is not centered on, on the Father and the only way to get to the Father is through the Son. And so he says true worship is worship in spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's think about the Spirit first of all. When he says true worship worships in spirit, what he's saying is this, there must be a supernatural work of God in our spirit by his spirit. That sounds like a really simple phrase. It took me a long time to get clarity on what he means here. It is a work of God's spirit inside of our spirit. And so true worship is not about externals. Listen, true worship flows from a heart that loves God and wants God and desires God. So this is an act of worship. Hearing me is an act of worship. Preach the word. Reading the Bible is an act of worship. Singing songs is an act of worship. Coming to church is an act of worship. But true worship is that it's coming from the inside. That there's something alive inside of you. That there's something that longs for Jesus and wants Jesus and desires Jesus. And if that is not true of you, if there is no desire for Jesus, then there may not be any spiritual life in you. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, you must be born again, John 3. The spirit of God must work in your spirit to bring you to life. And if there is no desire for the things of God, then there has not been a work of God in your spirit. And it could be that the light that Jesus is shining this morning is a light on your heart in which you honestly say to yourself, I don't have any desire for the things of God. I don't love God. I don't miss Jesus when I don't spend time with him. I don't really grieve over sin that much. I'm afraid I'm going to get caught, but I don't grieve over it. Well, that is the light of Jesus shining to say that there may not be any spiritual life in you. And so the spirit of God must make our spirit alive. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. To give you a great Christmas example of this, Luke 1, 46, when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What's happening in Mary? The spirit of God has awoken her spirit. So now that in her heart, she has this desire to praise the Lord. Why? Because the spirit of God put it there. So when it says true worship is worship in spirit, it is from your spirit, but it comes from the spirit of God making your spirit alive. You know what it means? It means living water. It means John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
And it says, and by this, he was talking about the spirit. And so the spirit of worship is a spirit in which God's spirit is working in you and giving you a desire to meet with him. And so when you come to church because you want to hear from God and you read your Bible because you're longing for God, that's true worship. It must be in spirit and truth, meaning it must be rooted and grounded in Jesus because Jesus is the truth and there is no truth outside of Jesus And that's why he says to her, you don't know anything. You don't know that salvation comes from the Jews, that there is a Messiah that is coming and I'm the one that's it. And so there is no worship of the Father outside of coming to him through Jesus Christ. Did you notice the emphasis on the word hour? Verse 21, the hour is coming. Verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here. Well, the hour is always a reference to the coming of Jesus and specifically the death of Jesus. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to talk, talk about true worship, just know this. True worship is centered upon a person. It is worship of the Father. And the only way to worship the Father is to go through the Son. And the only way to go through the Son is to receive the death of the Son on your behalf so that you might have your sins forgiven and have access to the Father. And when that happens, the Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of you and he gives you a long and a desire for you. And true worship is when you've come to the Father by trusting Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God has put inside of you a longing for him. And can I just tell you, if you have a desire for God, a longing for God, grieving over sin, that means the Spirit of God is inside of you. Is there anything better than that? That the very spirit of God has come to dwell inside of you. That is true worship. And that's the significance of what he says in verse 24. Look at verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. By saying God is spirit, what he's saying to this woman is this. God is not housed in a temple. He's not contained on a mountain. This is not about a place in which you go. It is about a person that you know. We don't make a pilgrimage to meet him. Listen, he makes a pilgrimage to meet us. That's the Christmas story. We don't take a pilgrimage to meet him on some mountain. He has made a pilgrimage to meet us. We don't go to a place where he dwells. He has come to our place that he might dwell inside of us. Jesus has come to bring us to the Father so that we might have the life of the Spirit so that we might be the dwelling place of God. And that takes it full circle back to verse 10 Living water, what God wants to put in you as you trust in Jesus Christ is these rivers of living water giving you life and hope and joy and satisfaction that come from the Spirit of God. We talked a little bit last week about how intentional John is about the location of everything that he has done in this book. Every book of the Bible is like this, but John is so intentional on the way in which he's writing and the place he's putting things. His concern is not always necessarily the right time, the right place. His concern is a theological concern in this book. And so I told you last week that this woman is here to show us an absolute massive contrast between her and Nicodemus. He's a man and she's a woman. He has a name, but she remains nameless intentionally. He's ceremonially clean. She's unclean. He's moral. She's immoral. He's respected. She's rejected. He's the ruling elite. She's the lowest class. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. There is just this massive difference between these two. She's not only despised by the Jews, she's despised by her own people. That's why she comes at noon alone because no one comes to her to draw with her to draw water. But here's the thing. The reality is They're exactly the same. Listen to me. They're exactly the same. 
both of them have found something apart from Jesus that makes them feel satisfied or an attempt to feel satisfied. His is just a little bit more respectful than hers. Hers is man after man after man after man after man and then another man. His is religious activity, but she's just as empty as all of her marriages. His religious activity, his quoting of scripture, his memorizing of scripture, his faithful attendance to church is just as empty as all of her marriages. It's just that he feels a little bit more pride because he's respectable. And the reality is he looks down on her as the immoral woman when the truth is when Jesus shines his light on both of them, they're exactly the same. They're empty trying to find something to find life. And could it be that there are some of you here this morning that have used your religious activity in order to make you feel some sense of satisfaction when there is no real, honestly, desire for the Lord and longing for the things of God. They're the same person and they need the same thing. What do they need? Whether it's a dead religious person or a dead immoral person, they both need a work of the Spirit of God inside their heart. That's what they need. They just need the spirit of God to come and say, God, I'm tired of empty religious activity. I want to actually desire you. God, I am tired of my, my immorality. I just want you and I'm thirsty for you. Because the point is that no one will ever be satisfied with a life that is not centered on God coming to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son by the power of the Spirit of God. I think the reason this conversation ends here with this I who speak to you am he is because once again, Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, if you knew who I was, that I am the creator and the giver of life, you would ask of me and I would give you life. And I think what Jesus says to us this morning, if you knew who I was, do you believe in Jesus and who he is? Well, then ask him. Ask him for everything. Ask him to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Ask him to deliver you from this sin and make you love him more than you love the sin. Just ask him. But I just want to end this morning with this one phrase here at the end of verse 23, and we'll be done. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. I love that so much. The Father is seeking such people. You may be asking this morning, what does God really want from me? Have you ever thought that question? What does God really want from me? I hear sermon after sermon, everyone with different commands and things I need to, what does God really want from me? Let me tell you very simply, what he wants from you is to believe that he is life and to go to him to find it. That's what he wants. He's not looking for you to jump through a thousand hoops. He just wants you to be fully satisfied in him. He wants you to know that he's better than anything else. And because you believe that by faith, you just go to him. What does he want from this woman? He wants her to believe that the man she's always been looking for is the man Jesus Christ and therefore to go to him to be satisfied. Brings us exactly back to the fact that all of us need this rivers of living water flowing in us and through us. And what it really is to make this practical and not obscure for us is a daily decision to believe that Jesus is better than anything else in life. And no matter how many things I buy or how many spouses I have, or no matter what I accumulate in this life, or no matter what success I have, none of it matters without Jesus. And I have to make a daily decision to say, I'm gonna choose to go to Jesus because he's got life and he's got life and everything else in life will be empty without Jesus. And so I just choose to go daily moment by moment, believing that life is empty without him. And I just want to drink from him as I open up the word in the morning. I want to drink for him as I remember a scripture in the afternoon. Because all God really wants from us is for us to discover 
that he has everything that we've ever wanted. Life in him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.